0: Don't be too focused on a particular direction or goal. It's good to have goals, obviously, but be open to opportunities and listen and pay attention and, um, follow the path where it leads you, <laughs> you know, don't, don't, don't be set in a particular pathway. Um, and when I've done that in my life, that has almost always led to really good things. And I think that's actually what's brought me to where I am today. And i feel very happy and fortunate about where I am now.
1: Welcome to The Drew Perlman Show. Think of this podcast as the antidote to the fear, the noise, and the talking heads in the news. The show features an entertaining blend of ancient wisdom, empowering ideas, and cutting edge, healthy living science to optimize your health and your life. Okay, well, let's dive in and get started. Today's guest on the show is Nicolette Hahn-Nyman, and Nicolette is an attorney and livestock rancher. Much of her time is spent speaking and writing about the problems resulting from industrialized livestock production. She is the author of the books, Righteous Pork Chop and Defending Beef. And Nicolette has written for numerous publications, including the New York Times, LA Times, Huffington Post, and The Atlantic Online, and she currently lives on a ranch with her husband and sons. Nicolette, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, this is this is great. You know, I, I just wanted to start um, because I was when I was researching you and your work. Um, so, so you began your career as an environmental lawyer working with Bobby Kennedy, and you were also a, a vegetarian at the time.
0: Yes, yes, I was a vegetarian for 33 years, so for a long time. Wow. And I was hired by Bobby Kennedy Jr. to be um in 2000 to be the senior at- attorney for an environmental group called Waterkeeper that many of your listeners are probably familiar with. You know, it's a a a collection of local water protection organizations that are all very grassroots-based and all focus on protecting the water in their particular community. So um, I had been a lawyer at the National Wildlife Federation, and from there I went to Waterkeeper. And after I'd been there for just a few weeks, Bobby Kennedy approached me about the idea of me working full-time on issues related to livestock production. So Mm. um, initially I was a little uh, hesitant because I knew that meant um, working on manure, pretty much. <laughs> 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 Didn't sound very glamorous. Yeah. Um, but I began... Um, I, Bobby asked me to go visit with um, people in different parts of the country that were really affected by large livestock operations, the pollution and the odors and so forth. And I did that, and then I was... Um, then I fully understood what he wanted me to do and the importance of the work. So I began... I, I, you know, sort of it, with a lot of um, enthusiasm, I took on the task um, because there really wasn't anyone at state or federal level government that was addressing this kind of pollution and, it, and it having it is still having a big impact on, on the country and particularly on the water quality.
1: Hmm. So, so at the time, so being a vegetarian for so long and, and now working on in the livestock world, I mean, initially, did you sort of see eating meat as really part of the problem?
0: Yeah, I think that would be a fair statement for sure. So when, when I started the work with Waterkeeper it sort of was um, almost like I felt like it was a natural outgrowth, you know, of the fact i had been a vegetarian already for over 10 years at that point. And I thought, yeah, I agree. The meat industry is a real problem, right? And this is good. I get to sort of now work against the meat industry and the problems from it. But it didn't take me very long to begin to see that it wasn't quite that simple because I began working with some farmers of the Nyman Ranch uh, network. That's how I ended up meeting Bill Nyman. And I was going to their farms and seeing the places that they were living and working and raising their animals. And these were just beautiful places that were um, places you would want to spend time, places you'd want to visit, places if you were an animal on a farm, you'd want to be. And they were um, sort of ecologically vibrant places with lots of wildlife and um you know, if you were visiting or, or or living there, you would have a high quality of life and you would be very grateful for the fact that you live there. If you were a neighbor of one of these farms, you would be grateful that you lived next door to it. And that was so different from what I was seeing from the concentrated industrial sector, which is much more like, um, you know, basically factories where you have um, very few people working there, a lot of automation. And you'll have, like in the case of pigs um, – You know, a Nyman Ranch farmer or something like that would have maybe 100 or 200 pigs. And on one of these big industrial operations, you would have thousands. I visited Mm. operations in North Carolina and Missouri where there were tens of thousands of pigs confined in these windowless metal and concrete buildings for their whole lives. And then there were just these giant you know, manure lagoons nearby that were causing tremendous odors and water pollution problems. And so there was this tremendous contrast between the different types of raising the animals, and that became apparent to me pretty quickly on. So mm. um, it didn't neatly reinforce my you know vegetarian beliefs after <laughs> after a little bit of digging into it. and the more <laughs> and then the more I worked on it, the more I saw this distinction as being really important.
1: Mm. And I love how you put that, how, it, how it, it's, a, it's a more complicated picture as you started to visit these ranches and these farms. But um, but Nicolette, you know, there's this perception in the media. And, and, and I think if you talk to most people that would tell you, you know, if you want to save the planet, if you want to feed the world, if you want to just be healthier, then don't eat meat. And it's a very simple, simple message. Right. But, exactly. but as you say, so so, where do you think this message comes from?
0: Well, I, I, in my books, I've spent a little bit of time um, sort of suggesting what I think as far as the history of how we got to this kind of common narrative that's out there. Um, I think it goes, I think part of it is that the meat industry has spent decades kind of In denial about the fact that there are some really legitimate concerns about this industrialized method that was becoming more and more widespread. And so instead of kind of recognizing the legitimacy of the concerns and trying to address them and trying to articulate what they were doing to improve themselves, um, the meat industry just basically took on um, this mantle of, you know, circle the wagons and deny and, you know, and attack the critics and that sort of thing. And farmers and ranchers, for the most part, haven't been very involved in this public conversation. They've been, you know, they're they tend to be pretty focused on what they're doing on their own land. And, you know, farming has never been a way to make a huge amount of money. It's mostly people um, that are, you know, they're they're. uh, I don't want to say subsisting. It's you know it's much more than that generally but it's they're not necessarily um making a tremendous amount of money. So they're very focused generally on their work and their you know their operation and making the books balance and so forth. Um and so there hasn't been that much public engagement by the farming and ranching community historically. I think that's changing a little bit. But so you had at the same time starting around 1970 or so I would say there began with books like Diet for a Small Planet, you began to have this idea in the public conversation that raising meat for food was resource intensive, was polluting, you know, and was really not justified in a world where there were more people, you know, and scarcer resources, and especially focused on things like water, but also land. And and that, you know, idea had a sort of growing resonance for a while. And then I felt... It was beginning to get a little more nuanced, and then the climate issue became really prevalent in the environmental circles in the last decade or so. And again, the focus turned to the meat industry because it's just sort of an easy, you know, an easy place to point, a kind of a culprit that we can can point to and say, oh, this is a problem. So the meat industry then once again became the subject of a lot of attention with respect to climate change and especially methane. But what all of this does is it sort of radically oversimplifies it. And um, there's, you know, the probably the single most important thing I've learned, I've now been working on this issue for about 20 years, starting as an environmental lawyer and then marrying Bill Nyman and becoming, you know, actually involved directly in a ranch for the last 19 years here. Um, the thing I have learned the most is how important how you're doing something is. So whether you're raising carrots or cattle, um, how you are doing it has all the difference. It makes all the difference in terms of water quality, air quality, soil health. And, um, and what I've learned is that, and this is where I've, um, started you know, using this expression all the time. it's not the cow, it's the how because there has been so much focus on cattle and this idea that that's inherently negative. So I want people to th- Think about this idea that when cattle are raised well, it's not just that it's not environmentally damaging. It's actually tremendously environmentally beneficial so that how becomes really important, because I believe we need the animals if we want to have a truly regenerative food system. But we've been doing it very poorly in so many cases, um, especially in the industrialized world, but really throughout the whole world. There's a lot of work that needs to be done in terms of how we're raising animals. And that's the where I'm trying to shine the light on that now, that question, the how.
1: Mm. So in, in terms of the how, and that's, and that's a great, great point, how you say, you know, whether it's whether you're, you're producing carrots or whether you're producing meat, would you say, um, Nicolette, that the real problem is just the industrialization system? Whether it whether you're producing meat or salad greens or whatever, it's that that industrial system is really problematic in a lot of ways.
0: Yeah. And I think that Michael Pollan has done some great writing on this whole idea of industrial organic, for example. And he's focused on some of the salad raising operations in places, you know, that are raising, you know, fruits, vegetables, et cetera. Things that we tend to think of as you know sort of having a lower environmental footprint and we tend to think of them as healthy foods and things like that but there's a radically different impact if you know if you have a vast area of land for example and you're just plowing it with huge plows you know mechanized tractors and then you're passing over it again with big tractors and putting seed and then maybe you're passing over it again multiple times to apply it. if it's an organic thing you're probably not putting um, as much chemicals on it, although there are things that are permitted within organic agriculture that are you know, comparable to chemicals, agricultural chemicals. But basically, um, you can raise food in a very you know, sort of unfriendly way in terms of ecological impact, and it can still be labeled organic. And unfortunately, that's how a lot of organic food is produced. Um, but if you want you know more, I, I was a biology major in college and I was reared in Southwestern Michigan and spent a lot of time um, outdoors and in a big open area near where I grew up, near Kalamazoo, and a lot of time on farms. And my whole sort of worldview has really been shaped by this idea that we need to have a better understanding of nature and connection with nature. And that when we do that, we're healthier humans. And I've really come to believe with farming, you know, the sort of um, optimal farming from an ecological standpoint is all about trying to mimic nature and create farms that are more like ecosystems. And so those mean things that are complex, you know, where you're um, raising a lot of different type of things, plants, animals, and really focused on the soil and the health of the soil. And when you do that, you know, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, animals are a really important part of it. And you can raise all kinds of different plants, you know, and especially the, like the big crops, things like wheat and soy and corn, they are raised almost exclusively in this country on large, huge monocrops that are very industrial. And if you just drive through you know, the parts of the country, like in, I've been in in Idaho multiple times through the potato growing areas. Mm. And it's just looks like a moonscape. It's just, except for when, you know, the things are in full bloom and the plants are high for much of the year, it's like a gray, dusty, completely dead looking landscape. And that's totally counter to good ecology and trying to really foster healthy food systems and create healthy food. And then in contrast to that all of the sort of most sort of beautiful and ecologically vibrant farms I've ever been to had animals because they're adding those elements that you know wild animals would be Adding in nature, so that's what my focus is on. It's like let's 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 turn um, the spotlight onto the question of how we're doing things, and let's make our farms more like natural systems and ecosystems, rather than trying to vilify individual particular foods that are being produced, which actually makes no sense whatsoever.
1: Mm. And and I love how you put it. I mean, so much of this is about soil health. Yes. And and, and it's like there's like this lack of understanding, I guess, that the soil is a living living thing. Yeah. And um, so would you say so? Does this relate to to like the regenerative agriculture movement? Is that is that a big part of the work of um? I mean, one of my big heroes is Alan Savory. Yes. And the work in in regenerative agriculture is that relating to what you're what you're talking about with soil health.
0: Yeah. And, and I've met Alan several times and spent time with him. And um, he's a big hero of mine as well. He has really shown, you know, the interesting thing about Alan is that he was this wildlife ecologist and very focused on protecting wild animals and creating healthy ecosystems for wild animals in Zimbabwe, where he's from. And he became convinced as he, you know, as he himself says, that that you know any large animals were problematic, you know whether it was elephants or cattle, and that you basically had to control their numbers through human intervention, you know through culling, and they did a lot of that in various parts of Africa. They reduced numbers of elephants through massive killing of elephants um, in the 1970s and 80s because it was believed that they were damaging ecosystems. And he was part of that. And it was really through that process that he began to rethink this whole issue because he discovered that they would reduce animals, they would reduce elephants in an ecosystem. And then the ecosystem would get worse (laughs) and Mm. they were expecting this to have sort of, you know, restorative impacts and it was making it worse. And he began this, you know, decades long journey of really trying to understand how do ecosystems function? And he became absolutely convinced that animals are essential and large, heavy animals are particularly important, he believes. And he feels that the grazing animals, because so many of them around the world have been eliminated by humans and other non, you know, non, you know, some of it has just been through natural climate change that happened, you know, centuries ago and millennia ago even. But the earth was covered by huge populations of, you know, caribou and elk and moose and deer and antelope all over the world. And we just have tiny remnants of those large grazing animals now that remain, you know, we have some caribou in the Arctic, we have A small portion of what was once there of, you know, the bison in the Great Plains of America. And, of course, the Serengeti in Africa still has significant numbers of large animals, but it's a tiny fraction of what was once on the earth. And so I really believe his argument is absolutely correct, that where you want to restore the land you need to have those elements of the ecosystem that were there for, you know, thousands of years and are now basically absent. And the domesticated grazing animals, definitely including cattle, perhaps most importantly, cattle are an essential element for restoring kind of ecosystem function. So, Yes. Um, I think that's what regenerative agriculture is all about. It's about trying to understand what you know, as the Australian author Charles Massey says, you know, what is the landscape function? What would this ground wherever I am have been look, how would it have worked? What would it look like? What would it sound like? What would it smell like? What would be here? You know, if there were not humans here radically changing the landscape and then trying to create human systems and in particular agricultural systems. That work with those systems. And um, and that's really what I think Alan Savory's work is all about, and the many, you know, thousands of farmers and ranchers that are now following his advice to try to think more holistically and think in terms of systems and make your farm or ranch work more like an ecosystem. And this is quite an important worldwide movement now um, within. Food production it's not the dominant um, system for sure but mm. there's a very strong movement to make agriculture truly regenerative along these lines and animals are an absolutely essential part of this
1: mm. so, so, so nicolette take us to your you fa- take us to your ranch and just what's going on there and and how you're sort of applying this i mean with your husband of course um, but how are you how are you applying this these practices at your own your own ranch
0: yeah, we are we're located on a ranch that's north of San Francisco. And my husband is originally from Minnesota. I'm from Michigan. So we're sort of two Midwesterners (laughs) that have ended up here. Mm -hmm. He came a lot earlier than I did. As I mentioned, I've just been here for 19 years, but he's been here for um, much longer than that. And he came at a time when he wasn't um, thinking he was going to be involved in agriculture, but he came in the uh, early 1970s and was um, accepted a job here as a teacher And soon began raising a little bit of his own food in a garden, and then that kind of grew into a farm. And eventually, he was supplying not just food to himself, but also to neighbors and then to some restaurants in the Bay Area. And this grew eventually into a network of farms and ranches that became the Nyman Ranch Company. And the common thread with all of these farms and ranches was that these were people who were trying to really raise animals in a way that respected the nature of the animals and also, you know, protected the ecological environment where they were being raised. So there was this kind of common theme of high animal welfare um, and good environmental stewardship, producing high quality food. And, um, you know, decades later, he and I met, and then we've now been here together for about 20 years. Um, But where we live, we're right on the coast, and, and we still live on the original um, ranch that my husband started all those years ago. And um, we are right on the Pacific coast. So it's a very windy, kind of windswept, cool place. People think of California as, you know, warm and sunny, <laughs> unless they live here, in which they case, they know that that's definitely not always the case. Mm. But it really depends on where you are, you know, and we're in Northern California. So where we're located, and we're near San Francisco. So if you, if you think of um, Mark Twain's, Um, famous quip that, you know, the coldest um, winter I ever spent was a summer in San Francisco. Well, that's (laughs) that's kind of that's our favorite saying. (laughs) We're we're always quoting him when people are coming to visit us in July and we tell them, don't bother bringing any shorts. So the reason I'm talking so much about the weather here is this is a. A perfect example where we are of a place where you really cannot successfully grow crops. And yet it's perfect for grazing animals because it is cool, it's windswept, it is often foggy. Um, on our particular piece of ground, which is right on the coast, um, it's rocky and hilly. It's really not a place where you could grow anything like strawberries or fruit or of any kind. Um, some greens are okay in some parts of our ranch. But basically, this was for, for centuries and for millennia, actually, a place where you had grazing animals and you had open grassland areas and mixed in with a little bit of trees and, a lo- and some brush, but basically open grassland. So what we feel that we're doing here, we have cattle. That's our most important thing that we raise. We also have raised heritage turkeys for many years, but we're um, currently not doing that, and we are raising chickens right now. We've shifted recently to heritage chickens. But the cattle are the most important thing that we do because we are basically raising them kind of what Alan Savory would call as a proxy for the disappeared wild animals. So we just try to um, have their movements Mimic the movements of wild grazing animals that would have been here. And they're essentially, there isn't that much interference that we have with their daily lives. They're basically just out there grazing and we're controlling their movements. So we're trying to make sure they are continually moved, but they're also uh, grazing enough of the vegetation that you get more diversity of the vegetation coming up. Um, because when you remove the dead overgrowth layer, the thatch, as they call it, there's more ability for the sunlight to penetrate seedlings that want to come up. So you have later sprouting species of vegetation and you get a lot more diversity where you have grazing. And then you want to let your land rest a lot. So um, one of the things Alan Savory and others talk about a lot is the importance of resting the land. So that's something we try to do here as well, where we we graze, we have the impact, you know, the animal impact of the clipping of the vegetation, pressing um, seeds and vegetative matter into the soil with the hooves, and the addition of, you know, very important biological material through um, the manure and also the moisture through the urine that goes through the animals. So there's kind of a cycling process that's hastened when you have the grazing animals it doesn't happen when you don't have them so we're trying to do all of those kinds of things on our ranch with the with the animals and we don't feed any grain or any kind of other feeds or supplements to our animals they're basically totally grass fed mm. and what we do that's kind of unique is that we raise our animals to full maturity on grass so a lot of grass fed beef is raised to sort of a young age and slaughtered what we would consider it kind of a premature point. Our approach is to raise the animal to full maturity and then to continue to raise it on grass to where it is able to fatten the way elk and deer and antelope fatten in a certain season. And then to do all of our slaughtering of our animals seasonally. So the way people would hunt at a certain time of year, because that's when the animals are fat and they're best for eating, that's how we slaughter our animals. So we just do it basically once a year, typically. And um, that's really what we do with our cattle. And then we have, like I mentioned, we had a heritage um, flock of turkeys here for, about um, nine years, and now we're raising heritage poultry, and they're outside during the day on grass, and they're foraging, and then they go into a barn at night. And we have um, dogs that live with them to protect them, because we have a lot of um, predatory animals here, and we don't want to eliminate those predators. They're a really important part of the landscape here and the ecological function. So we protect our grazing poultry with our dogs who are, um, you know, their livestock guarding dogs, not herding dogs. And um, those are really important partners in what we do. But so that's what the most of what we do. We've done a few other things ho- here over the years and we have our own garden and our own orchard for our own, you know, consumption. But as far as what we provide to the general public, that's
1: um, our focus. That's great, that's great. And, and the, um, the ranching lifestyle, it suits you and-
0: Oh gosh. I mean, that would be an understatement. It was a big shift in a way because I went from living in Manhattan to living on our ranch. But um, having grown up, you know, spending a lot of time outside, um, it's almost like I felt like I was returning, even though I never lived on a farmer ranch before, I was returning to that lifestyle where I was, you know, sort of outside and interacting with plants and animals, you know, all day every day um that was something i I had pretty much always done earlier and then when i lived in larger cities because i lived in a few other places too in addition to manhattan i i always missed that very much and in fact i had to live near central park when i lived in new york because i had to go to the park every day Mm. for a while you know just to be surrounded by trees and grass and stuff and i really appreciate the fact that central park has all those beautiful areas that feel almost like natural areas um And so, yeah, to me, just being outside for a large portion of every day. And, you know, it's sort of funny when I've lived in cities, um, my focus on the weather was just like, you know, what do I need to bring an umbrella? (laughs) You know, what shoes should I wear today? And when you live on a ranch and you're working on the ranch, especially, you are thinking constantly about all of the elements, you know, the wind, the moisture, you know, the the heat, the cold, you know, whatever's happening in terms of the weather, um, not just that day, but what's coming down the pike and what you've already had. This has a tremendous impact on what you're doing and how you're planning and um, what you're doing or not doing, you know, with your animals or whatever you're doing on your farm or ranch. So you're just much more tuned in and focused to what's happening um, in your, you know, in the climate you live in and in the geography that you live in. And, um, and that has felt, really um I don't know really grounding you know in the most literal sense um to me so yes and I you know we have two young sons now and um actually they're not that young anymore <laughs> they're <laughs> nine and thirteen they the, it has gone by very quickly um so they seem like they were just born yesterday to me but um I can't imagine a better place to be you know bringing up children than um, a place like this so I'm very grateful. And yes, it's, it's, a, it definitely suits me.
1: <laughs> That's beautiful. That's beautiful. So people that want to, want to learn more, because I, I, sometimes I feel, you know, like a little bit of information about a, about a subject like, like this is, is kind of a dangerous thing. Um, but the people that want to like, actually like really kind of learn more and get in and get into a subject as opposed to what they just hear, you know, kind of on the news or, you know, in the local media or whatever. One thing is they could read your books that would be a, that would be a good place to start. Um is that what you'd recommend to to kind of dive in and learn more for people that want to know more about this subject about soil health and regenerative agriculture and these kind of things?
0: I mean, I obviously would love it if people read my book defending especially my most recent book defending beef, the ecological and nutritional case for meat. I really try to um Deeply examine these questions of both the ecological and the nutritional side of the whole question of meat. But um, I know people are busy and they don't always pick up books. And I've written a number of essays on this topic. I also have other books that I recommend all the time, um, including. Um, especially anyone who's actually involved in um, agriculture, I recommend the book Dirt to Soil by Gabe Brown. That's a fantastic story of a farmer in North Dakota that took a conventional farm and began a long journey of trying to make it into a truly regenerative farm that might sound kind of boring, but it's not boring at all. It's a very easy read and it's a really great example of what we've been talking about. And another book, this is a little bit more um, of someone who wants to do a deep dive on the nutrition side. I would recommend um, the book nourishment by um, Fred Provenza, which um, is just Um, an incredibly uh, detailed examination of how our bodies um, function in terms of seeking out the kinds of nutrients that they need and how we have this whole sort of flavor feedback loop that tells us when we're eating real food, if we're actually getting the nutrients that we need. And its uh, he's a scientist and it's all done, it's all based on his own decades of research as well as other people's research. But that book, Nourishment, was something that um, I read twice Because it was so mind-blowing and complex, but also very life-changing in terms of the way I thought about food and eating and diet. And so I recommend that book as well. But, you know, there's a lot out there about regenerative agriculture these days. I do recommend watching Alan Savory's TED Talk. He -hmm. has an amazing and very easy, very watchable, super interesting TED Talk um, that summarizes why animals are so important. And there's just, you know, a wealth of information out there. So I just encourage people to just, you know, start looking into it a little bit. And there are some good documentaries that have been done now. And there's kind of a wealth of any, you know, anyone who wants to look into it, there's a wealth of information out there. And I just encourage people to try to um, delve into it a little more.
1: That's so great. Colette, just a few final questions. Um, I'd love to get your thoughts on this. What, what are some of the daily practice? I mean, I think we're going to think you've already mentioned some, but what are some of your daily practices that make you feel the most alive?
0: Well, for me, um, I, can, I can remember way back in childhood um, having a conversation with my mom where I said, you know, we went to church and um, especially when we were little, we didn't go every sunday but we would go occasionally and um i remember telling my mom one time when i came back in from being out in the woods i said you know the time when i most feel like i believe there is a god <laughs> is not when i'm in church but when i'm in the woods <laughs> you know <laughs> and um and i think i kind of still feel that way that um just being um you know the more i've learned about this in terms of the research that's been done around the world there's these forest bathing concepts you know and everything and in Japan and so forth, I think we are very, you know, we're struggling, especially in the industrialized world now. Um, Humans are really struggling with this feeling of, you know, isolation and um, anxiety and depression in so many cases. And I think the more time that each of us spends in a natural setting, um, it, it really gives us a chance to sort of reconnect with how we were all built and meant to be functioning. And obviously we live in these built environments and we will continue to do so. But I think having an opportunity to be around plants and flowers and birds and insects um, every day is really important, it certainly is for me. And and so yes, just being outside every day um, on our ranch or in my garden, I love being out in my garden, um, those are things that just really calm <laughs> yeah. me and bring me, you know, just... Back. I mean, especially nowadays with the news cycle being the way it is, you can you can sit there in front of your computer or listening to your radio and get very anxious and depressed and worried. And I think it's important to stay current about what's happening in the world, but I also think it's really important to stay grounded in your physical environment. And that's certainly something that I do. And also, um, you know, just every day, I would say another really important ritual in our family is sitting down to dinner together. So that, um, that practice of sharing a table, sharing food, you know, sort of literally breaking bread together, um, to me is probably another very important, you know, ritual or practice that I think is really helpful in my life.
1: Mm, That's great. Um, final question. If you had the opportunity to travel back in time, say, 35, 40 years, what words of wisdom would your current self share with your younger self? Wow. That's,
0: (laughs) that's a tough one. Um, I guess, you know, I, I have learned in my life that, um, the path is not always straight. You know, it takes interesting twists and turns and I guess I would just say, don't be too focused on a particular direction or goal. It's good to have goals, obviously, but be open to opportunities and listen and pay attention and um, follow the path where it leads you, you know, don't, don't, don't be set in a particular pathway. Um, And when I've done that in my life, that has almost always led to really good things. And I think that's actually what's brought me to where I am today. And I feel very happy and fortunate about where I am now.
1: Oh, fantastic. Um, Nicolette, where can people go that want to learn more about you, your work and your books?
0: I think that um, the best place, in addition to just sort of Googling you know, the things I've written for the New York Times and Wall Street Journal, et cetera, um, and actually I wrote a lot of blogs for The Atlantic. So there's a whole series of shorter pieces that I wrote for The Atlantic that you can find also on the internet. So that's probably a good starting point. But also I'm very active on Twitter. It's just def- hashtag defending beef. And then there's um, a Facebook account with the same name. And those are broad ranging discussions that I kind of host about food and nutrition and even cooking and gardening and just kind of a um, a focus on how do we create and um, consume healthy food in order to be
1: healthy people. That's fantastic. Nicolette, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for listening to The Drew Perlman Show. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. In the words of Mark Twain, 20 years from now, you will be more disappointed by the things you didn't do than the things you did do. So throw off the bow lines, sail away from the safe harbor, and catch the trade winds in your sails. Explore, dream, discover, and stay well, everyone.